Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Matt Salem, and you have tuned in to another episode of Our Best Behavior, a podcast brought to you by Behaviorally, winner of the 2020 Market Research Podcast Award. Behaviorally, formerly PRS and Vivo USA, helps brands improve shopper and consumer experiences by defining and diagnosing the behaviors that drive shopper growth. Each month, we produce a podcast to share industry insights on trending topics designed to help you make better shopper marketing decisions. Today, we are joined by Scott Brill, Chief Commercial Officer at Behaviorally, who will be talking with us about behavioral science and its importance, generally and more importantly, in the world of research. Welcome, Scott. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. How's it going today? Good, good. Starting to get a little warmer, I guess, outside, but uh, still not good enough for me. Yeah, I hear you on that. Well, that in and of itself will probably change some behaviors. I'd like to take the family outside a bit more, and uh, I'm sure it'll change a lot of things for us after after the beginning of 2021, coming out of 2020. Yeah, absolutely. So in talking about behavior and just starting more generally, why is behavioral science so important? Yeah, that's a really great question and, and a really good starting point for, uh, for this conversation. Behavioral science is really critical, certainly in our industry, but just honestly, you could apply it to, to life. It's really how people make decisions, really all decisions. Um, it's really the subject of human, in, human actions. The way emotions, the environment, social factors, all these kind of things really just influence our decisions. So if someone's goal is really to influence behavior, then it's really critical to know how that behavior happens and what's really driving individuals to take certain actions. Behavioral science, it really links everything from what I choose to have for lunch to what I watch on TV to ultimately what cereal you're going to buy. And the really interesting thing is that all these decisions, they're really not rational. Yes, my assortment of what's in my refrigerator is going to dictate what my possibilities are for lunch, but I'm not always going to pick the healthy snack. I'm going to pick potentially what's the easiest thing, what's front and center in the refrigerator, all these kind of things. So it's, it's fascinating how people make decisions and the ability to, to predict that on behalf of our clients, you know, just, just super important. Yeah, yesterday for lunch, I had my salad ready to go. I had my grilled chicken that I was going to throw in it. But I also had two leftover slices of pizza from Sunday night. And even though I try to stay healthy on a Monday through Friday, I, uh, I went with the pizza. So I could completely understand there. When, when you're thinking about changing behavior and influencing behavior, how do you go about understanding the how the behavior happens that you talked about? Are you merely asking people? Yeah, no, really, it's, it's much more about observation, much more about considering what people are doing. I mean, people, there's certain decisions you can certainly rationalize, but the majority of decisions are, again, much more emotional, system one driven. You know, that, that's been around for, for years at this point, system one versus system two. And it's not that everything's system one. There's always a balance between system one and system two. And the ratio between the two differs based on the actual decision itself. So it's much more about starting with, with observation and then diving into some of the factors that ultimately deliver that behavior, deliver that action. So, yeah, you certainly don't want to just simply ask someone directly, why did you choose the pizza? And yeah, they'll probably rationalize it. It tastes better, but more often than not, it's, hey, it was there. You understand that you get some pleasure from it. Uh, maybe it's easier. You know, a lot more goes into it simply than that enjoyment factor. So really need to observe more so than, than ask direct questions. 
That makes sense. And I think for me, with that decision yesterday, a lot of it was just the choice architecture, because had I not been home and had I been in the office with only that salad and chicken that I brought in for lunch, I probably wouldn't have moseyed to the cafeteria, were it open in this pandemic, to get something else. I probably would have stuck to my guns there. So interesting, the ideas of choice architecture, and as you mentioned, system one and two that have been around for so long. Who in the field do you find influential when we think about behavioral science and kind of the the masters of behavioral science in the universe, if you will. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the discipline's been around for, for quite some time now. Um, and there's really so many great academics that are really pushing the field and just pushing forward some of the, the great learning. I mean, the, there's the obvious people like Kahneman and, and Ariely that, that most people are aware of. But there's others like BJ Fogg out of Stanford, uh, Roger Dooley, who hosts the BrainFluence podcast, both best-selling authors, you know, really brilliant minds in the field. So it's really looking at a spectrum of people and not just kind of focusing on on one individual. And for what we do and how we support clients across various categories, various industries and sectors, you can't rely just on, on one point of view. So really it's about looking at all of these people, all of their thoughts, thought leadership, and of course our own understanding. I mean, we've been doing this since since the seventies. I mean, I've been here since 03, you know, you joined shortly after that, you know, so we've got decades of experience just, just ourselves in terms of observing consumers and applying that to how we might modify methodologies and modify even the framework that, that we could talk about in a little bit, but really utilizing all that, that thought leadership to understand again, consumer behavior. There's just so much out there now. It, it, it's amazing. It, it's a great time to be in, in the field. Everyone's kind of pushing each other. But yeah, you can certainly go back to some of those, those core academics as, as a starting point that honestly just have a little bit more time to dive into it. You know, go to Ariely at Duke or, or Fogg at, at Stanford. Literally, that's what they do day in, day out. They have seminars and conferences and looking at all different angles. And they boil it down to a certain point that we can then leverage to, to take it further for, for our clients to, to simplify it that much further and make it something that's really actionable for, for their businesses. So when it comes to simplifying it for clients and taking it to them in an actionable way, I know that there's a framework that has been developed and I'd love to hear a bit more about that framework and how it's being used and applied to the research that behaviorally is conducting. Yeah, really. Um, we've taken all that, that learning, you know, a lot of books, a lot of white papers, and, and pared that down to a simple two-prong framework or approach that we apply to methodologies, questionnaire design, reporting, uh, really everything as it comes to the consumer decision-making process. The framework itself, benefits and barriers, simple but not simplistic, again, leveraging all that, that learning. But really, these two aspects distill the decision-making process and really the balance between motivation and friction. So benefits being the motivation, you know, the reason that, that you might make a decision uh, and the barriers or the friction being the hurdles that, that someone really needs to, to overcome. And can any situation, whether it's, again, we talk about insurance or you know, the car making process or buying that cereal or choosing that, uh, that pizza for, for lunch, are we able to enhance those motivations, enhance those benefits and reduce the barriers and the friction to ultimately make a purchase, use a product, you know, those really being the two fundamental mechanisms to, to drive action. 
You know, and of course, there's certainly underlying principles that, that feed into that that we'll, that we'll utilize, but that it all kind of ladders up to, to those two aspects. When you talk about benefits and barriers, motivations and frictions, and earlier some of the commentary on how behavioral science can in fact be complex. And there are folks that think about this all day, every day, professors, academia, conferences that they constantly focus on, et cetera. How can we simplify behavioral science to make it more actionable for the everyday layman, if you will, you know, people that are not solely focused on behavioral science? And importantly, how can that translate over to helping clients? Yeah, and that's really what we started with uh, when we were thinking about uh, our latest framework um, and taking all those learnings and, and distilling them into the benefits and barriers. But really, there are many reasons that we wanted to, to simplify the idea of behavioral science. Fundamentally, it was about better supporting our clients and partners, and we wanted to make it easier for them. We wanted to make it, I don't say less of the, the conversation, because really everything that we'll discuss in any research initiative would be tied to the benefits and barriers, but we didn't want to spend 20 minutes of an hour long presentation or really conversation around next steps addressing the framework itself. You know, we didn't want to go through all these influencers and, and heuristics and the copy effect and conformity and, and all that kind of stuff. It's just too much. So utilizing, you know, again, all of our experience, you know, the, the, you know we live and breathe on a daily basis our passion, et cetera, we could boil that all down to, to a simplistic framework that allows clients to take action. And that's really what we're trying to, to do. We're trying to help clients drive growth, you know, move their brands forward. And understanding human behavior is how you really do that. So again, going back to kind of the start of our conversation, making that, that idea as simplistic as possible. So again, clients can act all the better. People continue to cite Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Great book, highly recommend it. Not everybody has time to, to read a 500 plus page book, you know, listen to the audio. So it's, it's that idea, you know, kind of leaning into what clients are asking of us, which is fundamentally to help their brands, help them grow, but knowing that we need some of that rigor and kind of behavioral lens in place and that's really why we wanted to simplify it. Just make it easier for, for our clients to incorporate this within their, within their learning and next steps. I think the simplification of it is behaviorally science-driven at its core. And if we want clients to actively think about behavioral science and how it can impact their business and drive growth, we have to make it simple to mm -hmm. you. The choice itself of using it or not is going to tie directly to its simplicity. So it seems like the smart decision to make it as simple as possible, which will hopefully help clients to activate it. You could spend a lifetime, and people do spend a lifetime uh, exploring all this stuff. And it's all great stuff, impressive stuff, but you know, most of it doesn't apply to every single kind of situation and everything that, that clients are asking of us. So yeah, to your point, kind of move past some of that extraneous stuff to, to more of that uh, direct, actionable, and simple framework. In mentioning that it doesn't apply to everything, but juxtaposed to that, some of the examples given earlier, it does come into play maybe if you're buying a car, mm -hmm. that decision, or purchasing insurance, as you mentioned. 
do the different types of scenarios impact how a framework such as this can be applied? Or is it a one-size-fits-all, particularly in our universe, shopper research, packaging? Is it as simple as taking that framework and applying it the same way, or are there nuanced differences that need to be considered? You know, it is as simple as taking the framework and applying it, but yeah, it's not one-size-fits-all. You know, you think of different tactics of shopper marketing, whether it's point of sale versus packaging versus pricing, an established brand, category leader, new product, a brand uh, established in, in one category, moving to another, it, even as things like refrigerated versus shelf-stable juice. You know, just the decision-making process, the experience, the emotion, let's stay on refrigerated versus shelf-stable. Refrigerated is, you're buying that probably for in the moment. You know, you're gonna get it and, and use it. You're going to get juice for your son, uh, for dinner that night. Is that a different experience, emotion, need state relative to that shelf stable that you might be more pantry stock? So yeah, it, it certainly is is nuanced and there's a different balance that might have to happen between the benefits and barriers, but those two fundamental issues, you know, still apply. So I mean, those are certainly CPG examples. You know, we mentioned car buying. Car buying, you go back 20, 30 years, it was a horror story. You're going to have to have a whole strategy and you're going to have to deal with the hassle of negotiation and, and have a master come with you and, and all this kind of stuff. And some manufacturers, Saturn, I guess probably the first one back in what the 90s, I guess it was, realized that there was just so much friction and so much barrier for people to come buy a car. They said, hey, let's scrap all that and here's your no hassle pricing. Fast forward to you know the last five years and you have things like Carvana that have made the process even that much easier. And you don't hear those horror stories anymore because if, the, if that is a barrier, the negotiation, the hassle, inventory, you know, if that's your barrier, there is an alternative that has made that process so much easier. So in that car buying example, barrier was first and foremost. And those are the barriers in terms of pricing and, and the specifics that go into your actual purchase. But that hassle was that barrier. They address that. That's all they really need to do. And those two, Carvana certainly doing doing quite well now. You go to more CPG type stuff and that balance and that ratio between benefits and barriers starts to shift. You know, it's more about potentially impulse, more about health credentials, so forth and so on. Um, so yeah, the, to, your, to your fundamental question, it's simple in the nature of easy to understand, easy to explain, but there is this rigor behind it that we've gone through to understand all of these different situations that we can then apply to individual business issues and business objectives. I like the car example, and it makes me think that benefits and barriers aren't necessarily universally a benefit or a barrier. Mm -hmm. Think about how the car buying experience has changed over years. Right here near me in Wayne, New Jersey on Route 23, CarMax is opening yep. a physical lot. So it's almost the other direction. Yep. Some folks, the barrier may be, well, if I'm going to buy a car from CarMax, I want to be able to check it out in person too and do so quickly and easily. So it's interesting how the benefits and barriers can be seen through the eye of the beholder a bit, which in my mind makes me think about different sampling of audiences and research and understanding how perhaps different psychographics may respond to any given stimuli, shopper marketing, packaging, 
and really curtailing the benefit and barrier approach to those specific audiences. What about in your own life? I mean, as we begin to wrap up here, I always like to throw in a random question mm -hmm. for my guests. Do you ever find yourself in a position, particularly since you're thinking about this a lot, that you're kind of literally weighing the benefits and barriers to yourself when you're in a supermarket shopping, when you're at the liquor store buying your favorite bottle of Balvini? <laughs> um, yeah, we've been doing this day in and day out for, for so long that you start to apply it to, to every everyday conversations, whether it's the grocery store or dealing with my four-year-old or started uh, adapting it to conversations with my wife and, and, and family members. But keeping it CPG, my family's very diligent focused. We've got shopping lists, everything. Um, we all have our specifics, so they got to be on the list. Never is that list uh, what, what we come home with. You know, it's always twice as large. The interesting thing to your question is, I don't realize until I'm 70% through that I've added 20 things. So on the 21st thing that I'm adding, I start to weigh the benefits, but I'll go back and look, why did I get this? What was I thinking? Was it just promotion and, and pricing? So it's a little bit more of a retrospective when you realize that uh, you're at your own spoils kind of, and you know, you, you've helped clients influence behavior and then that behavior that you've influenced ends up being your own ends up getting a, a good laugh in, in our household. That's funny. In my household, if I want my own type of mozzarella stick, my wife says, just eat the kids mozzarella. <laughs> the list tends to stay the same more so than that. <laughs> I understand where you're coming from. Don, it's been a true pleasure. I'm glad we were able to meet today and connect on behavioral science. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks a lot for the time that you've spent here today. And once again, to our audience, thanks for tuning in to Our Best Behavior, brought to you by Behaviorly. Thanks again to Scott Brill, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks, Matt.